0: We're studying through right now uh, the first letter of Peter, and we're right to the midpoint of what you might call the heart of the letter. So 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, in the same way you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Lord, we approach you in this passage with a desire to be taught and led and to have understanding. Father, even as I read through this again this morning, in this culture, I am sorry to say that some of these words are offensive. Amazing, Lord. That this text, which is so beautiful and so tender-hearted and so filled with, with Your love, it just rolls off the page and yet, in such high rebellion, we would hear these words and cast them out as oh, outdated, as archaic. But Lord, they are not. As with all of Your Word, this is eternal. Heaven and earth, Jesus, You said, may pass away, but My Word will never pass away. And so I thank You for that. I pray that You will open our ears to hear Your Word And that Your Spirit would do what You have done so many times before. We pray would You continue to teach and lead and instruct and bring revelation to us in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we have come to the very heart of Peter's great letter on sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he turns to the example of marriage. Now, I don't want to be insensitive, truly, and I think we can all agree that of all the conditions of life in which suffering is the most deeply felt, marriage should not be one of them. For all the kidding around, the knight on the white horse is not supposed to become the bum on the burrow. <laughs> Princess Buttercup. Buttercup is not expected to turn into that woman Jezebel. It happens, but these are, these are not our expectations on the wedding day. And you know what? Greater than all our romantic expectations or even disappointments of marital bliss, greater is God's intention, which He clearly spells out for us in His Word, And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That that is the point. Why Jesus said what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, it's because it's the most illustrative down-to-earth, day-to-day, real-time portrait of Christ and the church. That's why God gave us marriage first and foremost. Secondly, I would add, because it's not good for the man to be alone. And so companionship is something we're hardwired for and, and we desire to have. But marriage is supposed to be, and I'm talking in the ideals. In fact, speaking idealistically, there's not a one of us in here who doesn't know that the ideal is something none of us have ever yet reached. And often we fall very short from it. But speaking in the ideal, marriage is that consummate relationship that is supposed to be centered on Christ Jesus Himself and portraying Jesus and the church in relationship. That's the idea. That's the grand picture that the Lord painted from Adam and Eve and would paint all the way forward. And by the way, that is key to Peter's text this morning. That it is about Christ in the church. That that's where we're headed with this. And that's God's great desire for for any marriage, regardless of where it may be. Now, you may be sitting here this morning going, okay, this is not going to apply to me because I'm not married, or I was married, or I've had several marriages, or right now my marriage is so bad, whatever you're going to tell me isn't going to help. Well, just, just pay attention this morning and listen to God's Word and let Him tell you what He needs to. Because going over this, I am convinced there's not a one of us, youngest to oldest, that will not benefit from what the Lord wants to say. Now, if you saw the 2013 Emma Thompson, Tom Hanks movie, Saving Mr. Banks you know that it's all about the making of Walt Disney's Mary Poppins, which is a beloved movie, uh, seen by generations now. And, and it's about the difficulties of Walt Disney having to work with P.L. Travers, the author of the original Mary Poppins story, and how it took 20 years even to get her to be willing to talk to him about making it a movie. And then when they started making it a movie, what an absolute headache she was. And how persnickety she was, and making it a certain way, and and it's it's really it's a funny movie, it's a heartfelt movie. I haven't seen it? It's one that I would recommend, and there aren't many. But Saving Mr. Banks, the beauty of the movie and, and the, the the plot point lands in the most precious moment when Walt Disney flies out to Australia or out to uh, London, actually out to England, to visit with P. L. Travers. Shows up at her doorstep. She invites him in. They sit down and talk. And he tells her that he realizes, he understands that Mary Poppins didn't come to save the children at all. That she came to save their father. And that that's the heart of the story. What's amazing about watching Saving Mr. Banks is if then you watch Mary Poppins after it, totally different movie. Then you get it. Oh, now let's go fly a kite is not just another supercalifragilisticexpialidocious at the end of the movie. Now it's just a song of joy and Dad's there and he's got it and he has his family. He's been saved. And that's the, the point of the movie. So in the same way, whatever your circumstance, again, be it married, single, divorced, separated, remarried, the issue at hand... And the reason for the placement of this topic right here in this letter on suffering is not how to save a marriage. It is how to save another person. It's how to save a spouse or how to save Mr. Banks. Peter's exhortation throughout the letter in, in the context here, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, it is by nature a willingness to suffer for the salvation of another person. That's what the letter's about. That's why Christ suffered. That's how we most greatly align ourselves to Jesus and suffer like Jesus and share in his sufferings when our suffering is for the sake of the salvation of another. That to me is the, the whole letter in a sentence. Sharing the sufferings of Christ, which is for the salvation of another. So the context of marriage is perfect. And it's a beautiful location to think this through, this very difficult teaching. And note that it begins in verse one, in the same way you wives. In the same way as what? Now, some scholars say, well, it just means likewise, because he's introducing now a new subject area. No. Some say that Peter is comparing wives to the way that servants are to be submissive, jumping back to verse 18 of chapter 2. Here's where the scholar completely forgets the Savior, and it happens more often than not. That again, the fact here that the whole letter, indeed the whole Bible, directs us to the person in the example of Jesus. Always look to where the meaning of a sentence takes you back to Jesus and you're going to understand what the sentence is about. So when He says, in the same way you wives, you have to look back to what He has said. Whether it's a sojourner, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, or a citizen, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, or the servant slave, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, or the spouse, himself or herself, all are invited to share in the sufferings of Christ who shared for the salvation or who suffered for the salvation of others. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. This is what he's talking about when he says in the same way. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. And while suffering, He uttered no threats but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Please hear God's heart in this. You know, some might say, Rick, I happen to know you have, at least on the outside, a good marriage. So it's real easy for you to talk about this. Hear the heart of God, who understands suffering and sorrow more deeply than anyone else. That regardless of how difficult the marriage, regardless of how how dark the valley of the shadow of death may be, never forget that in Jesus we have the shepherd and guardian of our souls. The one who has suffered more greatly than you or I will ever suffer and who is here to shepherd us in and through whatever our sufferings may be. I think that key, that caveat, verse 25, we've returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls if we believed it and if we walked in it. I think that would save more marriages than just about any verse. Because regardless the hardship or the heartache or the difficulty in a marital situation which can so easily happen and so easily affects so many people, if I know I have a shepherd here, I have a guardian here, and much as I would like it to be, it is not my spouse. It is Jesus Christ who suffered before me. Then we come to the question, how would He shepherd us? How would He walk us through would Jesus remove us from hardship or would he lead us through it? I can give you his own words on the matter, John 17:15. He prayed, "I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one." Shepherd me, Lord. Guard me, Lord, even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now again, we're entering a difficult-to-navigate area, and Peter begins with wives. Daring. Courageous. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> no, no, no. The Spirit is inspiring and knows exactly what He's doing. The wives get six verses of instruction. We husbands just get one. Now, now please understand... One may be all that we husbands can get. You know, more than one, and we're going, wait, 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 can you go back to the other one? Because I'm still working on that. Six verses in one, but, but understand this, that verse 7, when he turns to husbands, also says, you husbands in the same way. So you could say that husbands actually get seven verses. We get the first six, and we get an additional one. You could put it that way. You'd be wrong, but you could say it that way. (laughs) Why would you be wrong? Because you husbands are also to act in the same way, not as your wives, but as Christ Jesus. You wives, Christ is the example. You husbands, Christ is the example. We go back to Him. He is the instruction. We are all called to the higher standard of Jesus Christ. But, ladies first, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. By the way, I want to say this. In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, that tells us right now that that doesn't include all other men. So ladies, you are to be submissive to your own husband, not to some other schmo. He's the one that you're called to submit to. There are other levels of submission and calling to submission in the church especially and among us as people, but this is not about male dominance for a particular marriage. And it again is even written to the disobedient husband. Note that we're talking about a disobedient husband, one who is disobedient to the word. The word disobedient there is in the uh, present tense. And it suggests not a one-time disobedience or a failure. It, it, It represents a pattern, a lifestyle, if you will. Not just a lapsed or a lazy believer. He's talking about, I believe, a man who is living in present active rebellion to the Gospel and to God's righteous standards. And that's the guy that the Word says, you wives, submit to Him. Submit to Him. Well, He doesn't deserve it. It's beside the point. has nothing to do with deserving it. Wives in 1st century Rome had no rights whatsoever other than those which their husbands gave them. You wanted rights, you had to have it from the big guy. From Mr. Daddy-O. From Papa. He was the one who gave you the rights to do what you did. And this was part of culture and it was assumed and expected. But suddenly, you've got women becoming free in Christ. You're free in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And she goes home from a Bible study. She goes home having given her life to Jesus and there He sits. (laughs) And you're going to give me my rights? I have just been set free. Well, how should they be advised? Get out of the marriage and come follow Jesus. He's your man. You know what? I've seen women do that today. Well, maybe not just so much getting out of the marriage, but denying husband as the one to submit to and just saying, well, I'm just going to submit to Jesus and ignore Him. That's not the point either. Yes, submit to Jesus, but this is a, a, a practical submission in the marriage. Do you leave the bum? Because now that you're free, well, you know He has no say over me? How would Jesus advise, here is how you begin saving Mr. Banks, Mr. Disobedient, Mr. Lost. Note this three words we'll put together here and work through. It's submission for observation unto salvation. Submission for observation unto salvation and He begins with submission in the same way. In the same way as what? As Jesus, you wives, be submissive. In the same way as Christ. Because here's the truth, you cannot browbeat anyone into faith. Have you ever tried? you parents ever try with an adult child to beat him back into the house and into church on Sundays and... Do you spouses ever try to demand that the other spouse go or push or, or cajole or cavort or try to compel them to get involved or to come back to Jesus? H- have you come to Jesus that way? Now, now, I'm, I'm think about this. When you gave your heart to Jesus, I'm not talking about when you started coming to church. When you gave your heart to Jesus, was it because you finally just gave up Because you were sick and tired of being beat over the head by someone with a Bible, so okay, alright. Or was it something else? Was it what the Bible describes where Paul says, Romans 2, verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? Or Titus 3, verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. You're not going to force faith. Required religion never roots deep in the heart. I know I was raised with some degree of required religion. And I don't even say that about my parents. My mom and my dad who have such a heart for the Lord. But I had this sense of required religion. And it wasn't until I started to see the kindness and the mercy and the grace and the love of God that I wanted to give Him my heart. Before then, it was get up Sunday morning because we're going to church. Slap a smile on your face and enjoy yourself. And I began to when I saw the love of Jesus. Shame is a lousy vehicle for the long haul. Guilt trips don't travel well. And so that's why He says to you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so even if they're disobedient to the Word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Again, observing the chaste and respectful behavior. As we observe the submission of Jesus on the cross we come to receive our salvation. So let's understand what this word submission means. The word submission is tasso. It's actually one we've looked at before. tasso is used often in the New Testament. And some have tried to soften the blow, especially in our society, and in our more feminist mindset of, of a society, to say, be submissive. That, that's really not what it means. What it really means is be thoughtful. You know, be considerate, be loving. I can handle that. Be submissive to the jerk doesn't sound good to me. Well, the New Testament uses the word hupotasso in a pretty clear way. It's used in Luke two fifty one of the submission of Jesus to his parents, that he was to submit to them, or the submission. Get this one: Luke chapter ten verse seventeen of demons to the disciples. Now I'm doubting that the demons were becoming thoughtful, considerate, and loving. No, they were submitting because they had to submit. Or the submission of citizens to governing authorities, as we studied Wednesday night in chapter 2 of this letter. Same word. The submission, Hupotasso, of Christ Jesus to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15.28. Or of servants being submitted or subjected to their own masters. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. It's used of the submission of unseen spiritual powers to Jesus. 1 Peter 3:22. It is used to describe the submission of the church to Christ. Ephesians 5:24. It is used to describe the submission get this of the entire universe to Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 and he put all things in hupotassō submission under his feet. And gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, dear sisters, listen. To be submissive is the most the most Christlike posture you can have on this planet. To be submissive is to be like Jesus. Zebedee's wife came to Jesus with a request asking if her boys, Yaakov and John, could have preferred seating in the kingdom. I'd like for my boys to sit on the right and the left of you. I want them in a high position. They clearly have been following you. They've given up so much for you. So Lord, I want you to do this for us. You can imagine how well that request went over with all the other disciples. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 24... It tells us that hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. You know, Jesus called them boanerges. I think the other ten were calling them boneheads at this point. And it says in verse 25, but Jesus called them to Himself. And He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You know what? Sisters, if Jesus came on such a mission of submission, why would we not do the same? How could we not do the same? So to submit is to submit. Let's not water that down. But He doesn't deserve my submission. Did we deserve the submission of Christ? Did any one of us deserve for Him to die on the cross of Calvary to save us from our sins? Well, I don't know. I had a pretty good week that week when He died so I think maybe I deserve... No, you did not. We never deserve the submission of of another. But that's beside the point. Be submissive. It is submission, number two, for observation. For observation. He says without a word. Now that doesn't mean that you never speak. It doesn't mean that you withhold the gospel. Well, I'm not going to tell him what the truth is. I'll just keep my mouth shut. He can figure it out on his own. Without a word simply means you live it. And you prove what you believe. I believe in Christ the Son, we just sang. If I say I believe in Christ the Son, then I am saying I believe in the One who submitted Himself to the Father, though He is equal to the Father. Look at the Godhead. Look at the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, each functioning in submission one to the other, though they are all one and the same God. Jesus is no less magnified than the Father. The Spirit is not person number three on the totem pole. There is no totem pole in the Godhead. And we say, I believe in Christ the Son. He is the one who submitted. And how do we know? By observation. We watched Him do it. These aren't just words where Jesus is concerned. This was His entire life. This is what submission looks like. And so we observed it. Christianity is not theoretical. It is practical and it is observational. And if it is not seen... Yaakov just told us this in five chapters of his book. If it's not seen in how we're living, then it's not Christianity. If it's not seen in my behavior, it's not faith in Jesus Christ. So again, back to you wives, be in submission for observation. Man, Peter has just been talking about obeying government authority. Remember this Wednesday night, a year ahead of Nero's persecution. Obey the governing authority. Obey the emperor. Submit to the emperor. Submit to Nero? Crazy Caesar, are you kidding me? Submit. Why? Because Jesus did. Not because they deserve it. The Gospel of salvation, when spoken without kind or loving submission, is always in danger of falling on deaf ears. Why won't He listen to me? Try submitting. I have spoken again and again. Every Sunday I'm saying, get up, come on. And He won't do it. Stop asking. Don't stop telling Him about Jesus. Stop asking and start doing. Because when we browbeat people where faith is concerned, and this is across the board for all of us, when we try to push or force somebody, we end up hardening an already hardened heart. It is not the way to reach into a heart and see it saved. What did Jesus say? What did God say through Ezekiel to Israel? I'm going to remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The whole point being, I'm going to soften your heart, not make it more hard. And so to win one without a word is to have that mentality, that thinking as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment, verse 3, must not be merely, merely external. Braiding the hair. Ladies, don't start taking the braids out. Wearing gold jewelry. Don't hide it. Putting on dresses. That's cool. But let it be, he's speaking in contrast here. He's speaking of the outward versus the inward. He's not saying the outward is a, a, a no-go. Don't do any of these things. He's saying let it be inward. The hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Well, is she precious? <laughs> You know what the last time was that we heard Peter use the word precious? When he was talking about the precious living cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Precious as in a precious gem. Highest of value. The precious head of the corner, Jesus. And you coming to Him as living stones are also to be precious in the sight of God. How do I as a living stone become precious? It's the inner life. It's the spirit man. It's the spirit woman. It's the hidden person of the heart. Men, don't relegate verse 4 to your wives. I read that and I think that is for me. The hidden person of the heart. That's where we go. But ladies, listen. what is of such high value to God is that which is hidden in the heart. That inward faithful Christ likeness, and note also that it is imperishable, he says in verse 4. Now that's good news. It never gets old, it never fades, it never acquires Botox. (laughs) Facelifts are unnecessary. Cover up is a thing of the past. The preciousness of the hidden life with God, of the heart, is something that gets more and more and more beautiful and wonderful and valued as we grow in life with Jesus. Proverbs 31 verse 30 30 puts it this way, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Stay with that idea of fear for just a moment because he's talking about submission for observation unto salvation. Verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. So Sarah is the example here of this submission for observation unto salvation. Sarah's submission saved Abraham's backside more than once. There was salvation that actually took place in the story. Sarah called him Lord. I have tried to point that out to my wife so many times. (laughs) She called Him Lord. You don't have to call me Lord. Boss will be fine, you know. Master, even with a little m, I'd like that. That's cool. She called Him Lord. Genesis 18, verse 12. Referred to Him as Sir. But more than that, understand, she treated Him that way. Well, of course she did. He was Abraham. Father Abraham. You know, Abraham... The father of the faithful. Certainly he should be called Lord, or at least Sir. And we expect Sarah to do that. Do you know the story of their marriage? Have you read about Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah? It's a marvelous story. Turn in your Bibles all the way back to Genesis 12 for a moment. Genesis 12. Now, as you're turning there, you need to understand Sarah was babylicious. No, she was beautiful. If she was president, she'd be Abraham Lincoln. She grew up near the region of Babylon. We're stretching now. Near the Euphrates River. She's a beautiful woman. This is how the Bible describes her. Even, even in her older years, I mean, the story begins, is she's 60, 70 years old? And... As Abraham and Sarah moved to a region, people were like, hey, check her out. So I I am not off the rails here in describing her in this way, but in verse 10 of Genesis 12, it says there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Let me just point something out to you. This is not in my notes, but this is what we always do. When things get tough, we always go back to Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world. Things get difficult maybe at church, maybe around other Christians, and so we go back to the world because we know there's food there. But we can go get something else there that we're not getting right now. This is too tough. So we go back. Don't do that. But it says in verse 11, it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know that you are, David, a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. Because they, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. What a courageous guy. <laughs> and it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was Abraham Lincoln. Verse 15. And the, <laughs> I'm just going to keep trying. We'll get there. They saw she was very beautiful, and Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Much to the dismay and the argumentations of her husband, oh no, that's not there. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake, and he gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female and, and female donkeys and camels. Now, before you even get to verse 17, what is Abram doing? Can you even imagine he's out in the field with his new flocks and herds and he's got his servants. And, oh, I hope, hope Sarai's doing okay over there, but look at this. <laughs> Verse 17, But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. I kind of feel bad for Pharaoh. He didn't know. I mean, he was kind of vile to take this woman. He had enough, you know, but... Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? And why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Remember I said women didn't have any rights. She's just being passed around here. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. I would love to be a fly on the chariot in that conversation. As Abram and Sarah are walking away and he's like, yeah, but look at all the flocks and herds we have now. And she's just like, send me over there. Go over to Genesis chapter 20 because you'd think once would be enough to learn the lesson. Oh no. Oh no. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. Now Abraham... So we've now had some great interaction with God. We've had our name changed. Things are looking up. It's a holy, faithful life. And he journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. And then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister! So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man. Because of the woman... You cannot make this stuff up. You can't write this stuff. This is hilarious. You're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she's married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation though blameless? Did He not Himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, I just see God putting little quotations around that, you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you Touch her. Now, here's the point. There's more to the story, but my goodness, she called him Lord. In between these two stories, she was still calling him Lord when she should have called him Abra Bum. <laughs> Why'd she submit? Even when she knew, she knew he was patently wrong and he was making dumb, foolish decisions, why did Sarah submit Fear. Fear. Oh, not of Abraham. Not of Pharaoh or Abimelech. But I believe Sarah feared God. And this is a key, ladies. Back in 1 Peter 3, in verse 6, he finishes referring to the wives saying, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord if you have become her children you become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear this is how you live wise. this is how you live without being frightened by any fear you fear God you fear Him you trust in Him with abiding reverence in your spirit. You trust Him as the shepherd and guardian of your soul. And you know what happened to Sarah? God saved her. Both times. Protected her from Pharaoh. Protected her from Abimelech. God saved her because she feared God. It was submission for observation unto salvation. And Sarah herself got saved. And so did Abraham, not because he lied, not because he deceived. He got saved too. Sarah was saved. Note this, ladies, saved from her husband's foolishness. You ever know that your husband's being an idiot? You just know? You're watching it take place? I could help, you know? And and, and the Spirit says. Submit. Submit for the Lord's sake. Submit for the Lord's sake. She got saved and both from her husband's foolishness. She was saved into the Father's grace. She was blessed ultimately as the mother of a nation, the one that would bless all the families of the earth. Genesis 12 verse 3. And God saved Abraham too. <laughs> He saved him from his foolishness, from his lack of faith, from his auto-destruct sequence that was set so many times in his life. God saved Abraham from that. And speaking of Mr. Banks, and saving that man. Listen, ladies, here's the thing that's hardest in a difficult marriage. The longer the marriage is difficult and the more the husband rejects every best intention of the wife, the easier it is as the wife to look at Him and go, I am done with Him. Even to the point of actually saying, I don't want to save Him. Let Him save Himself. In those moments, remember Jesus. And ask yourself, has there been anyone in history that Jesus would have said, I don't want to save Him. Let Him save Himself. You know, that's something Jesus never would have said. It doesn't matter how rebellious, how horrific, how hateful or spiteful or mean. It doesn't matter if the person's name is Judas. Jesus is still there saying, are you really going to go through with this? Jesus died for everyone. All I'm suggesting is if you want to submit like Jesus, there's the mentality. And then there's Mr. Banks, verse seven. You husbands in the same way. So a wise man is going to apply all of the above, including the suffering of Jesus Christ. Without sin, without deceit, without reviling or uttering threats, bearing our sins on the cross, the whole section, indeed the whole letter, the wise man, the wise husband's gonna read this and say, this is all for me. This is for me, and I am going to read it as such. And I remind you what Paul said, brothers, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. So you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Someone weaker is literally a weaker vessel And as I inferred earlier on, that is insulting to many in our society. Weaker vessel. Someone weaker. But you know what? In God's view, the weaker vessel indicates preciousness. Value. It's the difference between fine china and iron. I was thinking about this, guy. it's humorous to me, but you've got the fine china, which is what we set out on the table for guests when we're having them over to the home or for special occasions, bring out the fine china. And you're careful with it. And you treat it carefully because it's of such high value. Then you got the iron plates. What do you think of when you think of an iron plate? I think of a bunch of Scottish guys in kilts drinking beer and eating meat right off the bone. <laughs> The iron plate You know what do you do with the iron plates when you're done? it up that's right. The iron plate. You know, you don't take care of that thing. But the China? Which is the weaker vessel? The China is. Which is more valuable? The China is. No question. And this is what's wrong with our culture. Is our culture, by looking at words like weaker vessel and being, oh, I'm just incensed by that. Woman can do anything a man can do and better. You know, okay, whatever. What has happened to femininity in our culture? Or the push for and the drive for this equality. And by the way, this never says women and men are not equal. Different, yes. Doesn't say that we're unequal. But in our culture, what's happened in this, in this push? this feminine inequality to be able to be the same as a man and treated the same as a man and all that and suddenly now the fine china is not being treated well anymore. And our cultural view of men and women is so completely upside down, it is so broken and bent and twisted that now people have gender identity issues. They don't even know what to think of themselves. And the way for that in this day has been paved for 50 years. 50 years. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 22 says, The members of the body which seem to be weaker, seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need. But God has so composed the body, speaking of the church, giving more abundant honor to that which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Weaker vessel, more precious, would be a good way to look at it. But there's more to this. The word here, woman, Live with her in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, for she is a woman. This is a rare use of the word. It's not just gune, which is the Greek word for woman. It's gunechios. Rarely used in the New Testament. In fact, Grudem in his commentary says this translation is more literally the feminine one. Not just a woman because she's a woman. No, she is the feminine one. And what is suggested here, he writes, is that Peter looks to the characteristic nature of womanhood or femininity and suggests that a wife's femaleness should itself elicit honor from her husband. Did you hear that, guys? We don't treat her as a woman who's weaker so we put up with her. No, we highly value her in her femininity, in her sensitivity, in her spirituality. Spirituality. So again, husbands, a weaker vessel doesn't indicate less value or unequal, but deserving of even more of our care, more honor, more tender loving treatment. That needs to be the male mentality toward the femaleness of our wives. Now, she's not acting like she needs more care than you give her more. But she's being to me like, I've been to her. <laughs> Treat her better. Because she is the feminine one. And then continuing in verse 7, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Man, isn't it true? Can you effectively communicate with God while dishonoring your wife? Married guys. I can't. The worst time of the week for Cheryl and I to be in conflict is a Sunday morning right before I leave. Which actually, has worked out really well, the two services, because usually she's still sleeping so I can slip out of the house so nothing's happened bad. It gives us, you know, all Saturday night into the morning to fix or correct whatever happened on Saturday so I can come here and actually be able to talk about Jesus. A Wednesday afternoon argument, bad idea. I'm so thankful because now on Wednesday afternoons, the David has Taekwondo and the girls have ballet. So I don't even see Jesus. Uh, see Jesus. I don't even see Cheryl. Let's be clear who we're talking about. I don't even see Cheryl on Wednesdays until we're worshiping together. So it's perfect. And my prayers and my worship are not hindered. You know what? If I am in conflict with my wife, I cannot pray. I cannot be in relationship with God. What happens, often I will turn to God in those moments of conflict and just go... The woman you gave me! She did bid me and I did eat, and now we're in this mess. Ma- and you know, pointing the finger, the moment I do that, and, and this it's just, I'm just sharing here. Can, can we talk? Then <laughs> I will have those moments with Cheryl when I am angry and I turn to the Lord and I go, Lord. And the moment I say, Lord, I, I see him going, You go treat her as the feminine one, and you go love her because we ain't talking. Until you are talking. You want to shut down prayer, gentlemen. You want to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. You want to collapse the shepherding of Jesus in your life that we all desperately need. Few things will shut it down faster than treating her wrong. That's just the way it is. Submission for observation unto salvation and we can add to that, and I believe, women, this applies to you too, we can all add to that, supplication is part of the deal. Grudem wisely says, this is Wayne Grudem by the way, excellent commentary on 1 Peter, Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M, he says, so concerned is God, that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives, that He interrupts His relationship with husbands when they are not doing so. That God is the interrupter of our conversation when things aren't good between me and her. What did Paul say? 1 Timothy 2.8, I want the men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. We always assumed the wrath or dissension was toward other men. You know, stop locking horns with the other bulls out there and go pray together. Perhaps without wrath or dissension would apply in our marriages as well. We can't lift up holy hands and pray when we are in conflict. And again, ladies, you have that same impact. And you know. Now, I have been told that I am actually harder on my brothers than I am on my sisters. That I tend in my teaching as a pastor to lean more heavily on husbands and fathers than I do on wives of mothers. Let me just respond by saying, of course I do. Do you think I'm an idiot? (laughs) You know what? It's who I am. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a man. So yeah, I'm going to be harder on guys because that's me. I'm not a woman. I don't understand being a wife. I don't know what it's like to be a mother. So what I say to ladies and wives and mothers and sisters, I say carefully trying to you know stand as far behind the Word of God as I possibly can. <laughs> So it's His Word speaking to you and not me because I don't have that life experience. I'm a man. It's who I am. But my friends, all of this ultimately goes to who we are in Christ, male or female. Who am I in Jesus? Who are you? Verse 8, to sum all up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, And not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but note this, blessing instead. You might want to mark through giving a in verse 9. Because it's not there. It is not singular, it's plural. It is a lifestyle of being about the blessing, plural, of others. Not just giving a a certain or particular blessing. Giving blessing. Blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit... A blessing. Blessing in the plural form. Blessing as in God saying to Abraham, Genesis 12.3, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So see, this saving is much bigger than Mr. Banks. Or Mrs. Banks. Or the marriage of the Bankses. This saving is generating a blessing to your spouse, to your children, to people outside the marriage, to other believers within the church, to the picture of the church itself, and out into the very world we're talking about, living like Jesus, sharing the sufferings of Christ, that we might offer the blessing that He offered, salvation, eternal salvation. In verse 10 he begins to quote Psalm 34 verses 12-16 through 16, the one who desires life and to love and to see good days. So if that's you, continue reading. If that's not you, if you really prefer death and hatred and bad days, then stop right there. No, the one who desires life and love and good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek Peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, saving Mr. Banks has such a bigger impact and an influence than just Mr. Banks himself. All of this. Man, apply this to your spouse, husbands, wives, Apply it in your marriage, regardless of the state of your marriage. Regardless of right now, you're in a season of honeymoon or a season of suffering. Apply this in the marriage. Apply it to your parents. Apply it to your siblings. Offer it to your children. And even if you, even if I personally suffer for it, do it without reviling, without uttering threats, fearing God, entrusting ourselves to Him who judges righteously. And just remember, whatever we must suffer, we suffer. If indeed we share the sufferings of Christ, supplication and salvation will be the result of our sufferings. Relationship with God and an eternity with Him. Our prayers will not be hindered but we'll be rich and full and deep in Jesus. And the door of eternity will swing open wide in ways that we cannot see or imagine. We don't need Mary Poppins to fly in. We need Jesus. And we just need to share in His sufferings.